Well, some of you have seen the bumper sticker that says, don't follow me, I'm lost. And uh, Stuart Briscoe in his book, Everyday Discipleship for Ordinary People, illustrates what this can look like. He tells the story of a friend of his who was a fellow minister. And this pastor had been asked to um, officiate at the funeral of a war veteran who had died. And he was at the funeral home. And the dead man's military friends came to him and they said, we want to have a just a moment of remembrance of our friend. We want to honor him. So, Pastor, would you lead us in a military march down to the casket, stand with us for a solemn moment of remembrance at the casket, and then lead us out the side door as we march out? And the pastor agreed to do this, and so he did. And uh, after they stood at the casket for a moment and saluted this man, uh, the effect was somewhat marred when the pastor was leading them out the side door. He opened the wrong door and walked into a broom closet. And so they marched with military precision in full view of all the mourners into the closet and then had to beat a hasty retreat out the door. Now, Briscoe says this represents a cardinal rule or two of leadership. He says, first of all, if you're going to lead, make sure you know where you're going. And he says, second, if you're going to follow, make sure you're following somebody who knows what they're doing. As we turn in our Bible today to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, what we're going to see is Paul, the Apostle Paul, is a man who has a bumper sticker of sorts on his life. Now, Paul's bumper sticker doesn't say, don't follow me, I'm lost. Instead, what Paul tells us today is, follow me, because I know the way. As we look at Philippians 3, 15 through 17, Paul says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, as you read those words, I want to remind you that, that Paul, when he says those of us who are perfect, remember he's not claiming to have it all together. If you were here last week, We talked about verses 12 through 13, and there Paul said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. You'll recall that Paul here is talking about moving in in his walk toward maturity. The last time we saw that Paul used the image of this runner, one who was not looking back as he ran the race of life, but instead he was looking ahead to that finish line. That finish line when our earthly life is over and we are taken home to be with the Lord in heaven. And there we will be made perfect. We'll be, uh, we'll be given a new body. Our sin nature will be done away with. Uh, but what he is telling us, what God wants Paul to tell us today is just because we cannot attain to that standard of perfection until that day when we walk through the gate of heaven, it doesn't mean that we're not to be growing in godliness. Remember that? That we're, the, the focus here is not on perfection so much as the direction toward perfection. And so as Paul is talking about this, when he says that he and other Christians like him are mature or complete, remember that word teleos, it means mature, complete. What he's saying here is to think in terms of the being complete as far as you can grow at the present. Now, what does that mean? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Think about a human baby. When a human baby is born, 
if it is healthy, it is complete in every sense of the word. It has uh, 10 fingers and toes, two arms, two legs. It, you, you look at a baby and it's complete. But we would not say that this child is mature. There is a process as it goes through life that it matures and grows and develops further. But it is complete in the sense as far as it can be at the present. Now, that's in contrast to, say, a tadpole that becomes a frog. A tadpole, as it matures, it loses its tail, it grows its legs, it does other things. So what Paul is telling us here is, that we who are believers, we're mature, we're complete in every sense of the word, and yet he says that we are to grow, we are to develop. You know, when my children were still little babies, I would go in and play with them and babble over them and tickle their toes. You know, you see people kind of lose their sanity with their kids when they're doing that stuff. And as you're doing this, the kids, my kids would kind of kick their feet and gurgle with delight, but occasionally they kind of had enough of daddy, and they would start crying. Now, that was their way of saying stop. They, they couldn't communicate that. That was just their way of trying to tell me. Now, as my kids have gotten older, they can, they can communicate more clearly. And so when I do that, they don't, they don't have to cry when they don't like it. What they say is, Daddy, stop. Now, sometimes it's stop, I love it, keep it, you know, but they'll say stop. And so we would say that they've grown and matured. If you had a teenager who all they could do was gurgle and, and cry, well, well, maybe that's not a good illustration because <laughs> I have one of those too, you know. But if that's all they did, what we would say is, well, they have not developed or matured as they should. And so the picture that Paul gives to us here is that we who are believers are to be growing and changing. As you read 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says there, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. And then he says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. You see, as a person grows and matures, they change. They not only gain new things, but they also lose things, don't they? I was reminded of this again last week. My 10-year-old daughter lost another one of her baby teeth. And some of us here have gotten to the point where we've grown and matured to the point where we're still losing teeth and they're not baby teeth anymore, right? <laughs> we lose our teeth, we lose our hair, our hearing, our eyesight. You know, as you grow, you lose things. And what Paul says is as believers, that should be true of us as well. It's not just what we gain, but there are things we should lose as we mature, as we grow. We should lose some of our old way of life, our old sin habits, the things that we used to do before coming to Christ. He says those things are to be done away with as we are moving toward God's goal of godliness and Christ-likeness in our life. Now, while we will never be sinless until we get home to heaven, that moment when we're made perfect, the goal for us as believers is to sin less and less while we are here on this earth. Now, while we are to change, Paul makes clear that God's standard does not. He says in verse 16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. When Paul says to live here, he uses a, a Greek word that means to walk. It literally means to march in a row. You see, it was used of a military formation where soldiers would walk in formation where they would march together. If you've ever been out to the base and watched uh, when they're drilling, if you go out when the Air Force graduates a flight of new cadets and other things, you know they march by in procession, and as they do so, they're following the company standard bearer. 
There's somebody that, that is leading the procession and they're all lined up off this flag or this standard. And this is the picture that Paul gives to us. That standard is not just for show. Maybe in our day it's more of a, of a parade type of thing. But early on in battle, during the day when the Roman legions would go out and they had their standards, and you can think all the way through like the Civil War, the way that battles were, were formed up and, and the troops knew what to do is they would watch for the standard. They would watch for the flag and they would follow it. If the flag was moving forward, the troops knew we need to advance. If the soldier carrying the standard was wounded or killed and they went down, another soldier would run up and grab it and carry it because they knew that is what everybody is forming off of and following. If it advanced, the troops advanced. If it, if it retreated, then they would retreat. You didn't want to see that. But if sometimes they would hold a line and they would plant it somewhere and then the new line would form off that standard. And this is the picture that Paul gives to us here. As he calls on us to be those who are walking, he says that there is a standard that we are following, that we're marching after, so to speak. And a good picture of what this standard could look like for us would be the Australian coat of arms. Now, if you've ever looked at the Australian coat of arms, you notice there are two animals that are featured in it. One is the emu and the other is the kangaroo. And the Australians chose these indigenous animals not because they thought, well, we really like them, they're great. They chose them because they both share a unique characteristic. Do you know what it is? Both of these animals can only go forward and not backwards. You see, the emu has a three-toed foot, and because of that, if it tries to go backwards, it'll fall over. And the kangaroo, because it has such a large tail, it, it can't go in reverse. And so the Australians chose these animals to say, this is what we want as a nation. We want to be those who are going forward and not backwards. And so as Christians, this is kind of the picture that Paul gives for us. He says that we are to be those who are to keep living, he says, by that same standard to which we have attained. You see, he says, we as believers should not have retreat as an option in our life. When we move forward, when God grows us and we come to a point in our life where we've taken some ground, he says, let's not do what we call in Christian terms as backsliding. Let's not go backwards. He says, we've attained this, hold the line there, and then take the next hill. Continue to grow forward in your maturity as you follow Christ. Now, as you think about this idea of retreating as an option, there was a, a frightened young recruit. It was his first time in battle. And this uh, buck private was there on the line, and as, as the, the battle started to heat up, he was frightened, and he threw his rifle down, and he began a one-man retreat. And this guy was covering a lot of ground, going in reverse, and suddenly he was stopped by an officer. There was an officer uh, further back who saw this, this soldier coming this way from the battle line, and he pulled his pistol, and he pointed it at the recruit. And he stopped him and he said, soldier, do you realize that retreat, that, uh, that desertion is a offense to which I could give you a summary court-martial and execution right now? And as this trembling young soldier is staring at this service revolver of this officer, he says, captain, I'm sorry, please give me another chance. I'll go back. Captain, just don't shoot me. Now this officer looking at this young trembling soldier said, okay, soldier, I'll give you another chance. He said, but it's colonel, not captain. And this young soldier says, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't realize I was that far back. 
Now, for those who are in the military, don't send me letters. I know you lead from the front. I use that as an illustration just of what some of us try to do. We try to lead from the back, don't we? And it seems that the higher up you go, for some, they think, well, I can sit in the back and lead and just tell people where to go, what to do. And what Paul tells us here is, as he said back in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is God has given us an example. He doesn't say, uh, do as I say, not as I do. God himself, you'll recall in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we saw earlier where Christ himself, God, of whom there is none higher, it says he left his throne in heaven and he came to earth. He humbled himself, emptied himself in order to give us the ultimate example. He not only served as a servant, but he went to the cross where he gave his very life as the perfect sacrifice to save us from our sins. And Jesus, who had done these things, told his disciples after he washed their feet, he said, if I am your master and Lord, of which I am, and I've done this, then you are to do it as well. You see, what God calls on us to do as Christians is to lead with our lives. We, we just don't say, do what I say, or this is what God wants you to do. Rather, it should be, do what I do. As we look at Paul, he says in verse 17, join in following my example. Paul wasn't far back from the front lines telling everybody, okay, y'all go do this. What Paul said is, I'm on the front line. I'm carrying the standard forward. I'm showing you what it means to walk and live for the Lord. And he says, join with me. The word literally means be a fellow imitator. Now, Paul wasn't saying, you know, let's make a bunch of clones that look like Paul. Paul was able to say, imitate me, because in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, there Paul says, be imitators of me, what? Just as I am of Christ. Paul says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. What he says is, because I am following so closely in what Christ wants, as others will follow me, they will look like Christ. We're called to live for God so that when others imitate our lives, they will be growing in godliness. Friends, as you think about your own life, if somebody were following you closely, would they look like Christ? Can we really say, as Paul does, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Edgar Guest, who is a pastor, once said, I'd rather that somebody, he says, uh, I'd rather that somebody would show me the way than tell me the way. I'd rather see a sermon any day than hear one. Paul was one who preached a sermon, not just with his lips, but also with his life. And thus he could say here, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I want you to notice in verse 17 that Paul didn't say, look only at me. Look at what he says there. He says, observe all those, plural, who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul uses the plural here because he says there are to be multiple examples. Every man, every woman, every boy and girl who calls himself a Christian should be an example that others can follow. Now, it doesn't mean, again, remember that we're all perfect. What it means is that we're just one step ahead of another person. And as we're all moving toward maturity, as we're all growing in godliness, all we have to do is be one step ahead of the other person we're leading. 
And if you know people are following you, it will push you on to pursue more and more maturity in your own life because you realize, I need to stay a step ahead of the other. I need to be reading my Bible. I need to be praying. I need to be growing in my knowledge so I can be answering these questions. And so this is what Paul is calling on us to do here. He says, look at all of us. Observe those who walk according to the example. Now, when we see the word translated as pattern here, it's, it's a word that means to strike or beat. And it was used to describe the impression that was made by something. If you've ever taken a piece of leather and taken you know, one of those die and you kind of hammer it into it and then you, you have that impression that is left behind, that is what this word means. And it was used in uh, John chapter 20 and verse 25 to describe the marks that the nails left in the hands of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, to look at the pattern we are to follow, Christ, again, is the ultimate example. And what Paul says is each of us should be those who are, who are something that others, as they press up against our lives, are conformed to what it means to look like Christ. We're told in Romans to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not to be conformed by the stuff of the world. And so this is the picture that Paul gives for us. As we follow who Jesus is, that pattern, the ultimate pattern of Christ, our lives should uh, have that effect on others. As you think about your own life, does it really reflect Christ? As you think about your life being a walking billboard, what kind of advertisement are you giving for God? As people look at you, as they, they follow after you, are you giving an accurate picture of what it means to be a Christian. You know, whether we like it or not, people are watching us. Do you realize that? People know that you are a Christian and they're following you. And when we neglect to live our lives in a way that reflects Christ, we're a little bit like a TV repairman that lived next door to this new neighbor. Let me tell you this story. There was a, a person who purchased a house and as they moved in, they, they noticed, you know, our reception on our TV is very poor. Well, the new neighbors saw a TV repair truck that was parked in the driveway next door. They knew that their, their neighbor was somebody who was a TV repairman. And so they figured, this guy knows what he's doing. So the new neighbor went out and bought an antenna. He got up on his roof. He, he's got this antenna. He starts to install it. So he's looking over at his neighbor's house. And, and the neighbor's antenna was kind of interesting. It was kind of all twisted and turned in directions. Now, as many of you know, when you work somewhere or do something for a living, when you get home, the very last thing you want to do is think about work. So this TV repairman who dealt with fixing everybody's stuff all day long, whenever he came home, he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't even want to watch TV. And there had been a big windstorm that had come through the neighborhood at one point, and it blew this guy's antenna around. It was twisted, and one of the arms had broken off. But the new neighbor didn't know this. And so he's studying this, this example, and he, he installs his new antenna, and he twists and turns it to be a mirror image. And, and as he looks to make sure he's got it just perfectly, as a last act of perfection, he reaches over and he breaks off one arm of his new antenna <laughs> to match the neighbor's antenna. You know, brothers and sisters, as I said, people are studying us, and they look at us, and they say, I know you're a Christian. I see you coming and going from church on Sunday or maybe some midweek activity. Uh, those who are at school say, I know you're part of the student ministry or the singles ministry. You're in youth group. I know you're a Christian. Uh, those of you who are in the singles or college ministry, it's the same thing. 
Those of you who are in business or on the, on the bases, people say, I know you're a Christian. And what they're doing, men and women, is they're watching us. They're studying us. Do you realize that your life may be the only Bible that some people ever, ever read? The question is, what do they see? What do they see in us? The question is not, are we an example? Rather, it's what kind of example are we giving them to imitate? George Barna is somebody many of you have heard of. He's a, a researcher who studies Christianity. And Barna did this nationwide survey, and he found that 80% of the people in America know a Christian. Somebody, they would say, is a professing, practicing Christian. 80% of this nation says, I know at least one person. And Barna said of that 80%, he asked a follow-up question that said, how different is this Christian that you know? Of the 80%, who know a believer, only 15% said that a person they know to be a professing Christian lives a life that is any different than the non-Christian. 15% of this country only sees a difference in the lives of those of us that they're studying. Friends, what kind of example are you giving others to follow? The question is not whether or not our lives are an example. They already are. And what Paul tells us here in verses 18 and 19 is that if we are not willing to lead the lost down the right road, that there are plenty of people that are more than willing to step in and be the example to lead them down to destruction. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You know, you'll remember that the book of Philippians has been called the book of joy. All throughout this letter, we see Paul saying, rejoice. And in the midst of very difficult circumstances, Paul was even able to rejoice. And yet here we read he's weeping. Paul's not crying because of his circumstances, being in prison, facing death. He's not crying because things have been hard for him. What he's crying about is those who are headed for destruction. The word that Paul uses for destruction here literally means eternal loss. Eternal loss. He's speaking of hell. Hell is that place that when some die, they don't cross the finish line of faith and go into heaven. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ will go to the place of eternal separation from God, the place that we call hell. Paul says it's eternal destruction, eternal loss. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, these people who are leading others there. He calls them this because they have rejected God's provision for their salvation, which was the cross of Christ. They're turning people away from the right road to Jesus, and they're saying, do anything but be a follower of Christ. They're headed for hell because they, it's not because they haven't lived a good enough life. Remember Paul's resume earlier, he had all these good works and things, and he said, but I count all that stuff as rubbish. Your stuff can't save you. What he says uh, in another letter that he wrote, the letter to Romans, in Romans 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all missed the mark, the standard of perfection, the glory of God. So as Paul is speaking here, it's not about how good these people are. What he's saying is we're all lost. 
In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're told, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. When Paul talks about the way they're living here, what he's highlighting is the choices they've made to reject Christ and serve themselves. He says their God is their appetite. Their minds are set on the things of the world. Now, if you've ever been here for very many Sundays, you know I'm not real big on the turn or burn stuff. But I'm going to show you a picture that I think illustrates perfectly what Paul's talking about. Because what he's talking about here, remember he uses a word for eternal loss. That's hell. And what he says is there are those that are leading people down the wrong road, the road to destruction, the road to hell. Now, Jesus Christ himself said this in Matthew 7, 13. He tells us, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. You see, what our passage is telling us today is for those who have refused to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're on that broad road to destruction that you see headed down there. And the narrow gate that comes by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, as you look at the billions and billions in the world, very few percentage-wise come to faith in Jesus Christ throughout history. And what he says is it is our job to be examples, guides, Now, the scripture is very clear that God himself is the one who draws all men and women to himself. The Holy Spirit has to be the one to draw somebody. But the question is, are we being accurate guides? Are our lives demonstrating a way that will show people the way home to heaven? Friends, if you're here today and you're following that broad road to destruction, what God says to you is, I want you to change lanes. The Bible uses a word repentance. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And what it means is you realize the road you're on, living, either trying to get to God through good works or living your life in a way where you're saying, you know, I'm going to just enjoy the world. I'm going to grab every little bit of what the world offers me because eat, live, and because, you know, hey, one day we're going to die. What God says is you're on that broad road to destruction. And he wants you to have a change of mind. The word repentance means literally to stop, to turn around and go back in the other direction. So what it means is if you picture yourself at the cross of Christ, when we reject Jesus, we turn our back on his provision and we say, I'm going to do it my way. And what God says is stop, turn around and come to the cross of Christ. Receive me to be your savior. I died to pay that penalty of sin, which was death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you will come to faith in him, you you will move from that broad road of destruction to the narrow way, the way home to heaven. Now, as you think about that, many who are sitting here today may say, you know what, Roger, I've done that. I'm good. I'm on the right road, but Some of us here today, brothers and sisters, remember Barna? Only 15% are living a life that is noticeably different than the non-believer. And so what happens is some of us say, hey, I've got my fire insurance policy in my back pocket. I'm good. So I'm going to live the world's way. I'm going to do 90 to nothing down the superhighway of life. I'm going to grab everything there is. And at the last moment, 
I know where the, the exit is. I know God's going to take me home to heaven. So at the last moment, I'm going to do one of those swerve over, you know, five lanes. You ever seen those people on the freeway? I call them dive bombers. You know, you're coming along and just at that, la- I can squeeze in right at the exit. And that's what some of us are doing. We're saying, I'm doing 90 to nothing down the highway, the superhighway of life. And we, we know we're going to swerve over at the last minute. So, hey, we're good. But friends, what we forget is we have a bumper sticker on our life that says, follow me. I know the way. And there are friends and coworkers and others who are watching you. And like the guy who was adjusting his antenna, not knowing that this person was neglecting this. They look at us and they say, I'm right on your tail. I'm following you. And what they don't know is that that last second, you've already picked your spot, so to speak, where you're going to swerve over. And what they're going to be left to do is plunge off into destruction because they don't know really how to get home to heaven. They don't know that it's God who's going to take us out of this world as we saw last time. You know, if you're living your life like that, the first thing I would say to you is you really need to look at your heart. Because the Bible is very clear. If we truly know Jesus is our Savior, why are we going to continue in sin? Why are we going to continue to take advantage of his great grace? And, and what he tells us is he warns us in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus said that if we are those who cause others to stumble, it would be better for us to tie a millstone, that's a huge rock, around our neck. And he says to throw ourselves into the sea. It would be better for us to do that than to cause a little one to stumble. So if you're living your life with that bumper sticker on your life that says, follow me, I know the way, but you're, you're living in a way that is different, God says you need to make a change today. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you were here earlier in this series, you'll remember that the people who were receiving this letter in the city of Philippi understood this very clearly. Philippi, you'll recall, was a Roman colony. They were over in Macedonia. Rome was the capital. And as Rome took over most of the known world at that time, they had these little colony cities, embassy-type places. And if you walked into the city of Philippi, they were a Roman colony. And that meant that the dress, the law, the cultures, everything was Roman. You could be walking in off the street from another town and you felt like you were literally walking into Rome. It was a Rome away from Rome. It was a place that represented the home country, even though they were geographically in a different land. And for you and I as Christians, friends, we are called to be like this as well. Our citizenship, our ultimate home is geographically in heaven. And yet God has left us here for a purpose, and it is to be an embassy. When somebody walks into Wayside Chapel or any other church, God says that should be a place where they're getting a little slice of heaven, where they're getting to see what it will be like to fellowship in heaven. It should be a time where when somebody sees us in our schools, our workplaces, our homes, they're, they're, they're rubbing up against what does it mean to truly know and love God? Are our lives demonstrating, advertising fully what, what we're to be? Now, notice that Paul says our citizenship is present tense. He doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven. He says this is a present reality. It is not only a present reality and privilege, but a present responsibility. He says we are to represent our home country. 
Think about what would happen if, if our uh, ambassadors that we send out to other countries, you know, we, we have embassies around the world, and when we send an ambassador, that man or woman is called to go to that other country and do two things. It's to be a home place for those who are citizens that can come to and get things taken care of or be a place of refuge in times of trouble. But it's also to be a place where we represent the, the nation that we are from. So if you're flying the American flag, you're representing the values, the agenda, all the things of America. Now, in order to do that, the ambassador needs to be out amongst the people of that land. How effective would an ambassador be if they simply stayed huddled within the safety of the walls? And they said, you know, we're not going to have any contact with the people of this place because we don't want to be polluted and, you know, we don't want to hear, uh, you know, their stuff and they, we're not going to tell them our stuff because it can be controversial. And so the only time that the ambassador maybe ventured outside the walls was to be a tourist. And they went in, they took in the sights, enjoyed a little bit of the culture, but then quickly ran back within the walls of the compound. Would that be an effective ambassador? No. And yet, some of us as Christians are being ambassadors that way, aren't we? We go from one holy huddle to the next to the next. And we say, I don't want to have any contact with the natives of this land called earth. You know, those people who aren't saved. I don't want to talk to them or, or be interacting with them. So we're more like tourists. We take in a little bit of the sights and the sounds. We enjoy uh, what we can. But what we're saying is I'm waiting for that day when I get to post out of here, when God is going to call me home. What Paul tells us is our time here is short. He says in verses 20 through 21, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, if you were here last week, and you'll remember in verses 10 and 11, we talked about the out-resurrection. Do you remember that? The rapture? If you miss that message, you can go back and hear it online. And we talked a little bit about an event that is coming called the rapture where God will physically remove us from the earth who are believers. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And those who have died, they will be resurrected, their physical bodies. And this is what Paul is pointing to. Remember, his, he's saying there is a time where we cross the finish line where we're made perfect. And so here he's speaking of that event again. He says Christ will transform us. The Greek word used here means to change the outward form of our lowly bodies so they will be like the body of glory that Jesus has in heaven. There will be a physical change to our physical bodies. He also says that he will conform us. The Greek word there is semiforform, and it means identical in essential character. Not identical mirror image, but identical in essential character. What does that mean? It means one day when we get home to heaven, we will be given a perfect, permanent resurrection body. It will never again suffer death, decay, disease, anything. If you read the book of Revelation, it says when we get to heaven, we will see Jesus Christ in his physical form. And it describes him as being a lamb standing as if slain. We will see the marks of the crucifixion the, the place where the nails were driven into his hands and his feet, the place in his side where the spear was thrust into him, it is a badge of honor because it was through his death that we were saved. 
Jesus Christ will have a body that looks as if a lamb standing as if slain. Our bodies will not match perfectly that, but they will match the essential character in that they will be perfect and permanent, never again to die or suffer decay. And this is what Paul is telling us. He says, in that completion of the process, when we are made like Christ, this is what will happen. 1 John 3, 2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Paul says we eagerly await that day. Friends, are you looking forward to heaven? I am. I'd love to punch out of here and and just be home right now. But until God says that it's over for you and me, remember what we saw last week? If you're not dead, you're not done. God says that I have a, 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 a role for you. You are ambassadors. You are those who represent Christ. And he says, until that day when we get to go home, the picture Paul says when we eagerly await it is he's literally on his tiptoes and he's leaning forward. Remember the race he was pushing for the tape? Paul says, man, I'm running full speed. I wish that day were today. But until that day, I'm going to keep doing what God has called me to do here. Before Jesus Christ ever left this earth, he promised us he would be back. He said in John 14, 1 through 6, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, do you know the way home? Do you have a bumper sticker on your life that says, follow me, I know the way? And are you truly showing other people the way home through the cross of Jesus Christ? Christ is coming back for us, and when he does, we will be made perfect. There will be a transformation of our body. It says, from the humble state to the glory that awaits us in heaven. Now, as we go through this life, there are hard things that happen. There are temptations. There are distractions. There are things sometimes that that make us forget the road ahead. There's a fog that covers the road sometimes. It's so thick we can't even see the next step, we think. The Bible says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Sometimes all God gives us is a glimpse of the very next step. And he says, by faith, take that next step and then the next one and the next one. And as we're thinking of this this goal of where we're going and how sometimes we can be distracted, I want to close with this illustration. The importance of knowing the way home and the the ultimate goal is seen in what happened on a fog-shrouded morning on July 4th, 1952. There was a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick. She was a long-distance swimmer. And she waded in the water off Catalina Island in California. She wanted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. Now, she wasn't new to uh, long-distance swimming. She had already, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. And so she had trained and she was ready. And as she waded into the water that morning, it was numbing cold. And there was this heavy fog that covered the area. 
In fact, the fog was so thick, she couldn't even see the boats that were in her party that were going to be the escort vessels. She started swimming. The fog was so thick, she couldn't see. Uh, several times, sharks had to be driven away with rifle fire from the escort boats that were around her. She swam more than 15 hours before she asked to be taken out of the water. Now, her trainer that was in the boat that was shadowing her said, look, the, the, the land is only half a mile away. You're almost there. Keep going. You can do it. And as she's swimming, she's looking, and all she can see is this thick pea soup. She can't see. And the trainer kept saying, it's just right there. And she said, I can't see it. Just get me out of the water. I can't make it. So she quit because all she could see was the fog. Later, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or the fear or exhaustion that kept her from her goal. It was the fog. Friends, many times we fail. And it's not because of fear or peer pressure. It's just because we lose sight of the goal. And we just get tired and we don't see the finish line and it's hard to press on for that goal. Which is why Paul tells us in 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He tells us to focus and fix our eyes on what is ahead. In Hebrews, he tells us that we are running with a great cloud of witnesses, others that are around us encouraging us, that have been examples before us and that are telling us, keep going, you can make it. Two months after her failure, Florence Chadwick waded into the water again, off the same beach in the same channel, swimming to the same goal. And this time she did it in world record time because it was a clear day and she could see the land. Friends, may we be those who not only keep our eyes focused on the finish line, but may we live in a way that shows others the way home. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we know that there are people all around us who can't see the goal. They don't yet know you, God. They don't know what heaven is really like. They don't know the way home, which is why you've put us here, to be those who will serve as examples, those who will show the way, those who will be encouragers, not only to other believers who are growing weary, but to those who are, who are lost and have not yet found you. May we be those, Lord, who live in a way that our lives truly reflect you, that are an accurate translation of the truth of your word, that show people your great love, love that was demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you tell us in Romans 5.8. May we share the good news of the gospel. May we share with people the way home through you, Jesus. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our men and women at the front who will pray with you if you have a need. We'd love to help strengthen and support you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.